Good evening, and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, November 14th, 2010. So we are going to start with Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. Again, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. And the verse reads, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God counts the spirit. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God counts the spirit. So, what are the questions? God, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God counts the spirit. Okay, Linda, thank you. How are eyes and spirit related? Uh, and, and what does it mean anyway that God counts the spirit? Uh, and, and then, yeah, how are those two related? What's the first half have to do with the second half? So, in the first half, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this. Human psychology is such that a person needs to feel a certain sense of security. And if you feel insecure, that's not a fun thing. Okay, very uncomfortable. I think we've mentioned before that Sajigan uh, says that you should always feel secure that your ideas are right, but you should be willing to retract if someone can show you that your ideas are wrong. I mean, what else are you going to rely on except your own ideas? And you have to rely on those, and at the same time, you have to be open enough to recognize if someone can say, ah, no, it's like this. And then you say, oh, okay, now I have new information and I can steer in that direction. So what could be the cause of my ideas being wrong? I'll suggest three possibilities. Number one, you have incorrect facts in a situation. Uh, I thought the meeting was supposed to be at 10 o'clock. It turns out it was 11 o'clock. Uh, my idea is wrong. Or I might not have all the facts in a particular situation. And then the third possibility is that I have some emotion involved. Uh, and that could include a hidden motivation, but that it's clouding my view of reality. That emotion is getting in the way of my seeing the correct ideas. Now, the second half means that only God knows the truth about good and evil. And I'm starting here with the translation that Rashi has when it says God counts the spirit. That's Rashi's approach uh, on this verse. And the interpretation by Rashi is that God counts, if you will, all of the souls. In other words, God knows. Okay. God knows all of the souls in the world simultaneously. He doesn't know things one at a time, like we know them. He is one, okay? So God's knowing is different than a human being's knowing. God knows the depths of my soul in the same way that he knows which uh, fish uh, will eat which worm. And 
sometimes we can end up in a situation where we have this feeling that God, you know, looks over us and loves us. And so we end up picturing him as kind of a big version of our parents. But God doesn't have senses, okay? He doesn't see in a physical way like we do or hear in a physical way like we do. So even the way that he knows is different than the way we know. Okay? There's no knowledge that he doesn't have. Everything is all one idea to him. So how he knows me, it's not a personal thing. He knows me in the same way that he knows the fish and the worm. He's not looking down on me in particular. Okay? He knows, but it's not like somebody's standing over you, staring at every move that you make, you know, waiting to whack you. It's all one in, in if I can say God's mind, and we know God doesn't have a mind, but it's all one uh, to Hashem. Now, as we've talked about uh, before, this is an idea that can help a person who might be hung up on the idea that, you know, God's like an angry parent, he's waiting to whack me if I do something wrong. That idea is a projection of ours. We're projecting that idea onto God. Um, instead, God's knowing is an all-knowing. Uh, and it's in a way that we can't understand because we experience knowing in a human and linear way. So, as a point, by going over this idea, we can use it to help undo the idea that God's, you know, looking over me like a frowning teacher or a school principal just waiting to catch someone in the hallway during class uh, or something along that line. So that's Rashi's interpretation, okay, as I understand it. Any questions on that interpretation before we go on? Okay, now... There's one thing that bothers me about this interpretation, not that it isn't correct, is that it doesn't appear to be telling me anything practical that I can necessarily use and take action on. I can use that idea that we discussed to help undo that emotion if I have it, okay? It could be telling me to be a little less sure about my own plans, since I might be missing facts or fooling myself about my own motivations, but it seems like there might be more in the way of practical application in the verse. So to that end, let's look at the interpretation of the Rabbeinu Yonah. His translation of the second half, uh, and the Ralbag translates the verse this way as well, is Hashem rectifies individuals. So the verse would read, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God rectifies individuals. So then the question is, well, what does that mean? And as I understand it, the Rabbeinu Yonah is saying the verse is talking about character traits. We naturally think that our character traits are good, and this makes it very difficult for us to change. But if a person does show an interest in improving themselves, then God rectifies the individual. That is, God bestows upon the individual the capacity to rectify themselves. So the way that I understand what the Rabbana Yon is saying is like this. 
yes, we think that all our character traits are good, and uh, you know that makes us makes it difficult for me to change. But if I do see that I need to change, and I take steps to do that, I am given the capacity to change. In other words, the individual has been given the capability by God to make changes to his character traits if he truly makes a sincere effort to do so. So, this interpretation of the verse would be teaching us that even though we think our ways are pure, we should be constantly working on character improvement, and that God does give us the capacity to do that. Okay, any questions on that? Jim, really nice question. Can the idea that I might be missing information be paralyzing? Uh, or better, how do we keep that from paralyzing us? That's a great question. Uh, and yes, I think it is possible that a person could uh, be paralyzed in their own mind because they think they're missing information and they're so intent on wanting to make the right decision that they think, oh, I can't act because oh, if I go this way, I might be wrong. But if I go that way, I might be wrong. But then if I go this way and that way, and then you end up in analysis paralysis. I think the way out of that and to, to keep from paralyzing ourselves is to recognize the, the point of Sajigan at the, at the beginning that a person should always feel secure that his ideas are right. And you have to recognize as part of reality that you almost never have complete information. You're always missing something. And that you have to operate on the basis of what you have because that's all that you do have. And it's not clear, you know, what the outcome might be. We've all been in situations, I think, where we, um, you know, we have to make a decision in life, left turn, right turn, uh, you know, should I have the surgery or should I hope that, you know, the problem will go away? Um, and I've looked at all the data and been given all the available information by the best people, and they don't even know. They can, all they can tell you is, you know, this could happen or that could happen or whatever the situation might be. And there you have to just say, okay, I'm going to make the best decision I can based on my analysis of the situation. Um, should I sell my older car because now I need to start putting a lot of money into it for repairs and, gee, it might just end up becoming a black hole? Uh and go out instead and buy a newer one, or should I keep repairing the old one? Well, there's no way absolutely to know. Uh, you, you, uh, you just have to make your best decision based on the information uh, that you uh, have at the time. Uh, my wife and I were recently uh, buying an appliance, and they, the place we were buying it from offered a five-year extended warranty for a particular amount of money. And we sat there and waited, okay, you know, what are the possibilities? The appliance will fail in the five years, and if it does, how much trouble would it be and what would it cost But compared to the price of the extended warranty? And you just have to make your best decision because we don't have complete information, and that is part of the human condition. Okay, let's continue on then to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3. And this verse reads, roll over to Hashem your actions, and that will make your thoughts firm. 
Roll over to Hashem your actions, and that will make your thoughts firm. Now, in terms of getting the facts clear, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that the phrase, roll over to Hashem your actions, means give over to God all of your actions. Okay? Give over to God all of your actions. So, in, in, uh, based on his suggestion, the verse would read, give over to God all of your actions, and that will make your thoughts firm. So, given that, what are the questions? Thanks, Jim. Absolutely. What does it mean to give over one's actions to Hashem? And Linda, excellent. How are thoughts and actions related? Um, and what does it mean to make a thought firm? And then, of course, how does the whole thing work? I mean, how does one thing lead to the other? And, you know, what what's King Solomon uh, doing? And... And yes, Jim, how will plans be established? Okay, now I'm assuming your translation probably says um, establish plans in the second half instead of uh, make your thoughts firm. And I think, uh, no, that's fine. I, I think, as we'll see, that those are uh, going to end up being synonymous. Oh. Okay. So, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this. He said, all of your actions are not in your hands. All of your actions are not in your hands. Everything is dependent on God. Whenever you do something, you don't know whether you're going to get the desired result. Okay? Some people spend huge amounts of time on something. For example a person who wants to try to win an Olympic gold medal, and they don't, okay? They can put forth all the effort that they have, and they still don't win. Or a person can pour all his efforts into trying to make a business go, or an invention work, or whatever, and it can still fail. Uh, you, could, you could plan out a, a certain enterprise and take into account all the relevant factors, um, and, and yet still not be successful. Uh, I remember reading about one guy who had a business, and he expended a huge amount of money uh, on advertising for a big, huge push. And then the IRS came along, and as I understand it, without telling him, froze his bank accounts. And they were auditing him. And I understand the auditor's explanation for freezing the man's accounts was that he wanted to, quote, get his attention, unquote. Well, the man's marketing push failed, and if I recall, as a result, his business went bankrupt. Now, based on the information I was given about that story, it seemed that the action of the IRS was something completely out of his control. He had done everything he could, planned his business well, and yet it still wasn't successful. So there are generally always outside factors, factors that we can't uh, control. So... What uh, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested that we're seeing in all three of the verses, this one and the previous two, one of which we did last week, is one thing. And that is, coming at it from different angles in each verse, it's saying that there is no real security in the physical world. 
Okay, there is no real security in the physical world. No result is completely in your hands. There are always possible outside factors over which you don't have control. And so, and this, get, Jim, gets to the, the point you raised, that you have to recognize that you have to do the best of your ability, but that the results are not in your hands. All we can control in life is actions that we take. What happens as a result of those actions, that's up to God. Our obligation is to do the best we can, and that's all we can do. Now, it's true that we need to do correct actions, but how do we know how to do that? By being able to think clearly and to analyze a situation accurately in accordance with reality. So the key area for us to focus on uh, and what he suggested and over which we have control is our thoughts. Now, he pointed out that if we're talking about the world of, of Psalms, the book of Psalms, then we would expect that, you know, you would, if you're in a tough situation, you would turn to God for help. But in, in Mishle, in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is focused on the practical life in the physical world. So recognizing that there are no guarantees in the physical world, um, we can see that the, the place then to put your energy is into the world of thought, which can then influence your actions. Most people try to control the physical world. If you think about so many things we do in life, it is about trying to control the physical world. I was driving through, I think it was Utah, a number of years ago on a vacation trip. And I was out, you know, in an area that was very rural, where you could look far and see these, you know, incredible landscapes and so forth. And here's a guy with a house on a small piece of land, and I think he had some grass and so forth. And he is out near the front of the road with a weed eater, uh, you know, taking out weeds right along the edge of this property. And yet the vision or the view that I had was this entire expanse of this incredible country that went on and on and on. And of course, all the growing things and whatever on that. And here's this one guy with this one little implement trying to take down a couple of weeds. And I thought to myself, you know, you're not going to stop the growth process on Earth, you know, uh, with with a, a weed eater. So we don't have necessarily ultimate control over the physical world. We do actions in order to try to influence things. But when we recognize that there are no guarantees in the physical world, then what that suggests to us is to put all of our energy into thought. And the thoughts become the essential part of our lives. Now, sometimes things pop up uh, in your mind that you don't seem to have control over. Um, I mean, that's because, uh, from Rabbi Moskowitz's point of view, that you have an unconscious part of you. Uh, so we're back to the rule is that you need to do everything in your ability to do that which is correct and then pray to God that it works. It could work, 
but it might not. Again, the results are not in our hands. So we put more energy into thought because that can help us to undo emotions and deal with some of the issues in our minds that can cause those popping up thoughts and things that will distract us from seeing reality clearly. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz has cited on a number of occasions the uh, story of uh, Jacob when he was had left Laban and a messenger came and said, Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. Well, you don't usually come with 400 guys for a party. And Jacob knew that, you know, that meant trouble. So he did three things. He divided his camp into two, figuring, okay, if one group gets attacked, the other group will escape. So that was preparation in the event of a war. And he cooked up this uh, arrangement to send a whole bunch of gifts to his brother to try to appease him. So that was an action in order to achieve peace. And he prayed. So, I mean, he's done essentially in his situation everything he can do. He's prepared for this, he's prepared for that, and recognizes that the results are in God's hands. So these three verses are a continuation of the idea of humility. According to King Solomon here, there are a couple of ideas around humility. One is that uh, I change my mind in accordance with true ideas, and the other is that I recognize that I have no control in the physical world. And knowing one's place in the universe is also a type of humility. Okay, and there's also a humility in recognizing the nature of the human being and a human being's weaknesses. So accepting all that uh, is part of humility. This verse seems to be focused on the idea that um, there, there is no uh, physical security, no real guarantee of physical security in the physical world. Okay. Any questions on that? All right, then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4. And this verse reads, All actions of God are for him, and the wicked on the day of evil is for God. All actions of God are for him, and the wicked on the day of evil is for God. So, what kind of questions does that stir up? Okay, Linda, good. What's the day of evil? What does that mean? Any others? All actions of God are for him, and the wicked on the day of evil is for God. Let me suggest some others. First of all, what's an action, when it says actions of God, what does that mean? And, and how are they for him? I mean, that seems like a kind of an odd thing to say. I mean, if we're talking about actions that God takes, well, wouldn't they be for him? I mean, who else? And we've... Uh, 
we've asked the question, uh, Lynn asked the question, what's the day of evil? What about who are the wicked in this case? And how are they for God on the day of evil? I mean, that also seems rather odd. Uh, and then, what, what's the contrast here? I mean, what does this verse mean altogether? So, I'd like to suggest that actions of God means three things that we can know of. I mean, if we think about how does God relate to the world, I'll suggest that there are three ways. First of all, there are the laws of nature, which all of us find ourselves under. Then there is God's personal providence. So for a person at a certain level, uh, God uh, may step in and do things within the context of his systems to help that person or do something that will you know, perhaps help them to grow. And then there are outright miracles. And we've seen those in the, in the Torah. I'm, I'm not aware of any other actions of God that we can see or that we're aware of. Okay. And Jim, yes, how do the wicked relate to God? I mean, it just seems really bizarre. Like, yeah, you wouldn't normally put those together. So, Rabbi Moskowitz said that there are many interpretations of the term for God, but in the class he was giving, he took it as praise. So, in other words, all we should see in the physical world is God's greatness. So we look around and things are going on, uh, the weather, the complexity of plant systems, the ecology, the way our bodies work, the fact that food grows that we can eat and process and take nourishment from, photosynthesis in plants, it, all the systems you want to look at. And we should see God's greatness. And he said the same for the wicked on the day of evil, that that also is for God's greatness. Now, I'll suggest that the wicked here are those that have committed themselves to focusing their energies in the world of the emotions and the world of the physical desires. That's the primary purpose they have in life. This is not like the majority of people who are, you know, maybe in between good and evil. This is a, a wicked person is one who has has taken a stand in the world of evil in the same way that a righteous person has made a decision to choose a life uh, of righteousness, that they're going to live a life of righteousness. So what then is the day of evil? I'm going to suggest that it is the day when the wicked person gets the consequences of their actions. So wicked people are doing stuff. They're acting not in accordance with reality. And there are consequences associated with that. So when that happens and they get those consequences, that is the day of evil. Now, trying to define the purpose of the physical world is a little bit of a dangerous thing because that in and itself is kind of a type of control. You know, if we want to say, ah, yeah, I know exactly what the purpose of the world is. So we're not saying here that we know absolutely 
what the purpose of the world is. But the benefit to us seems to be that through the world, we see the greatness of God. And how is it then that a praise, how is it a praise of God when we see the wicked in the day of harm? You know, if that's what it means, and the wicked on the day of evil is for God, meaning a praise to God, because then we see that God's system works well. In other words, the system he set up of consequences and people uh, experiencing those consequences and so forth, that in itself is a system. And we see the beauty of how that works. Someone pointed out, and I think it was Rabbi Moskowitz, that um, if you look back over the course of history, you see that the, the world almost seems to have a fail-safe system built into it because somebody will get into power and maybe be, they'll start out okay, but then they'll become really wicked and start doing terribly evil things. And then a bunch of other people will rise up and you know conquer or stop that person. And then they get to be in charge and they go along for a while and then somebody starts to do something that's kind of out of line you know, with reality, and maybe they go down some wrong road or start oppressing people or whatever, and pretty soon the oppressed people rise up and, you know, kick them out of their positions, and we go through this cycle in history over and over and over again, you know, and it seems to be kind of a, a system or mechanism that brings us, you know, back to uh, some sense of equilibrium that allows man to continue on the planet. So when the wicked actually get their consequences we're able to look at it and see not so much, you know, a, a gloating and a vengeance type thing, but a recognition of, ah, yeah, you see that consequences occur in the system that God created of consequences, and that in itself is a praise of Hashem's creation. So the verse is teaching us about how to view the world. We see God's greatness in, in all of his actions, the, the laws of nature, his personal providence, and his miracles. And we also see that on the day of evil for the wicked person. We see that system working as well. So it's a, um, I guess if you will, a reminder to us of, of seeing the benefit of God's creation in all its aspects uh, in that it allows us to see the greatness of God. Okay, any questions? All right, thank you. Let's go on then to Proverbs chapter 15, uh, 16, sorry, and verse 5. And the verse reads, It's an abomination of God, every haughty or arrogant person. Hand to hand, he will not be innocent. It's an abomination of God, every haughty or arrogant person. Hand to hand, he will not be innocent. Now, let's see if we can just, before we ask questions, it would probably help if we establish uh, a little more on the facts. The Ralbag says that hand-to-hand -hand comes from the word miad, which means immediately. So according to Rabbi Moskowitz, the meaning of hand-to-hand -hand in our verse is that consequences will happen suddenly. Okay, 
And Jim, yeah, that's first thing that seems to jump out of here is what does hand-to-hand mean? I mean, hand-to-hand sort of brings to mind the idea of hand-to-hand combat, and is that what he's talking about? But uh, the Ralbog says it's talking about immediately. So given that, what kinds of questions should we be asking around this verse? What's, what doesn't make sense? What do we need to define? Okay, Jim. But are the haughty punished immediately? Very good question. And, and what's an abomination? Okay, it says an abomination of God. We've talked about that in other verses. Does it mean the same here? Okay. Um, what does it mean that he won't be innocent? I mean, a haughty or arrogant person? Well, yeah, isn't that obvious that they aren't innocent? And what is this verse teaching us about the practical world? I mean, it could be that it's an observation about how, you know, God views, and I use that term anthropomorphically, uh, haughty or arrogant people, but what do I get out of this? You know, in terms of this verse, what's, what's it teaching us? So, and Rabbi Moskowitz uh, answered uh, also, or asked also another question, when we look at uh, his understanding that the, the uh, hand-to-hand means immediately so that hand-to-hand in our verse is that consequences will happen suddenly, we could also ask, well, consequences also happen suddenly to a righteous person. So what's the difference between a haughty or arrogant person and a righteous person here? And Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, he said, if cancer is detected early in a person, they can be helped often. But if you don't detect it, then suddenly you find out that you have it and you're dying. Now, Musser, as we've discussed before, is the science of the consequences of your life or the consequences of life. And Musser is a form of early detection. You see the consequences of your actions before the actions ever start. Or sorry, before the, the consequences occur. So by being able to look ahead and foresee the consequences of your actions, you can protect yourself. So it's like an early detection system. Musser is like an early warning system for you. It helps you avoid the consequences that you don't actually have, that you don't want to have, and that aren't good for you. Now, by contrast, the wicked, okay, the haughty or arrogant person, they don't have an early detection system. A haughty or arrogant person is not going to be willing to study Musser and apply its lessons. So, since they're not trained in Musser, the consequences are going to come upon them, and suddenly they will wonder, why are the consequences here? Why, what happened? Why is this happening? It's always suddenly for them, because they don't have Mishle. They don't have the book of Proverbs. They have not learned about consequences. And Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested that it's an abomination to God or of God because you can't see the consequences immediately. 
And we've talked before about how not seeing consequences can lead to a person's destruction and about how that is an abomination to God. Now, we discussed in verse 11.1 many, many weeks ago that the basic cure for all of our wrong views of life is truth. It's the basic foundation of everything we're talking about. And I will submit to you that it is God's will that a person be guided by truth. But when a person is guided by falsehood, that's an abomination because it's the destruction of the person. I mean, the person is headed toward destruction because of uh, being guided by falsehood. So, anyone who doesn't have an early detection system like Mishle, like Proverbs, who doesn't see the consequences of their actions, must get those consequences. Hence, uh, the end of the verse, hand-to-hand, -hand, he will not be innocent. Okay, any questions there? Okay, and I think we have time for one more verse tonight. So let's go to 16.6. And it reads, With kindness and truth, sin is atoned, and with the fear of God, you turn from evil. With kindness and truth, sin is atoned, and with fear of God, you turn from evil. So as you read that, what kind of questions appear? With kindness and truth, sin is atoned, and with the fear of God, you turn from evil. Jim, very interesting. Does fear of God precede kindness and truth? Good question. Good question. And it would seem that truth would precede the fear of God. Ah, that's good. Good. Well, let's hold that thought. And we'll see if, if uh, we get an answer to that. And if we don't, then circle around and uh, remind me of again if I don't cover that. Any other questions up here? Okay, how does one learn fear of God? Good. Thank you, Jim. Okay. Here's one. How is sin atoned with kindness and truth? What happened to repentance? I mean, we don't see anything mentioned of repentance here. If a person is just kind and truthful, how does that atone for sin? Okay. And how does the fear of God cause you to turn away from evil? And as often seems to be the case, what does the first half have to do with the second half? I mean, they sound like they're talking about completely different things. Okay. And Jim, you, you've suggested that kindness and truth are the embodiment of repentance. Uh, let's see, because if we think about the definition of repentance that Maimonides gives, he has a pretty straightforward formula, you know, that you have to recognize the sin and um, you have to confess the sin and so on and so forth. And somehow that doesn't seem to be here. So, but 
you're you're um, you're touching on what I uh, understand uh, the answer to be. That's true. Recognizing the sin and confessing seem to correspond to truth. I would agree. According to Rabbi Moskowitz, in this verse, he said atonement means forgiveness. Okay. Sin could mean a violation of Torah, or it could mean where you do something foolish or evil. Now, when it says kindness and truth, he suggested, the truth is where you think through your kindness. In other words, you think it through and then you carry it out. Your sin here is your overattachment to the physical world. Okay, something that you have done, you know, incorrectly. You've got an overattachment. And how, do, how does kindness help that? Because kindness gets you involved with someone else. So it undoes your attachment to the physical world and helps you straighten out your action. If you're totally me-focused, then, you know, everything's about me. But when you start getting involved with what someone else is about or what their situation is or what their problem is or trying to help them, then you, like, get out of yourself. You, you're not there. You're, you're involved in helping someone else. And that helps you undo the attachment you have to the physical world. He said that the atonement here is not like on Yom Kippur, okay, which would explain to us why we don't see the repentance part. But he said it's that you're moving away from your overattachment to the physical world, okay? So that's the first half. It's about kindness uh, and truth and thinking through the idea uh, thinking through the kindness and then carrying that out, which, which detaches me or helps undo my attachment to the physical world. So that's the first half. Now in the second half, how does the fear of Hashem turn you away from sin? Okay. And I want to comment on two positions taken by the commentaries. The first position is that the fear of God happens to you before the sin. Okay? In that situation, and again, fear of God, we're talking about consequences. Not like some, you know, shaking in the corner, worried somebody's going to beat on me, but the fear of God is the fear of consequences. Uh, the, the, we're just talking about the systems that God created and the things that happen in those. Um, and that we see God's greatness in that. So when I'm in fear of Hashem, I'm in fear of the consequences that might occur to me because of the actions that I might take or a situation. So the first position again here is that the fear of God happens before the sin. In that situation, I turn away from the sin before I do it because the consequences of my actions are so clear to me that they cause me to turn away from the evil. In other words, a person turns away from the violation of Torah, or you turn away from a foolish or evil act because 
you see the consequences of that. And so you stop yourself and say, oh, wait a minute, I don't want that consequence, so I'm not going to do that thing. So this is very similar to our you know, previous discussions about fear of God and fear of consequences. The fear of the consequences stops me before I commit the sinful act or the evil act. Now, a second commentary position is that the fear of God refers to after the sin. And according to the Ma'iri, the fear of God here means that you remove those traits that caused you to do the wrong thing. So, a person um, commits a sin, you know, whether it's a violation of Torah or whether it's a foolish or evil act, and then realizes that they did that. And the fear of God then refers to them undoing the emotions that caused them to do the wrong thing in the first place. So in that interpretation, it's about what you do after the sin in order to root out the cause of the sin. So both uh, interpretations, uh, from my standpoint, are quite reasonable. Uh, and the fear of God can cause me, or the fear of consequences can cause me to turn away from the actions, and it can also help me to uh, take the actions necessary after I've done a sin to go in and root out the cause of that so that I don't do that again and don't get subsequent negative consequences. All right. Any questions there? Jim, you've said, I would expect that if Solomon meant that the kindness was properly thought out, he would write something like, with true kindness, sin is atoned, rather than with kindness and truth. Uh, I, I don't know that I can give a good response on that one, because um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how he would have written it necessarily uh, you know, different than he did. Uh, this, again, was Rabbi uh, Moskowitz's uh, interpretation Although I would, I guess I would, I would add to that a little bit. If a person just did it, and it, here's why I think perhaps he included truth. If a person just operates with kindness, okay, without truth, a person can do some very dangerous things. Um, you know, you might end up helping someone who shouldn't be helped. Uh, because you think, oh, it's a very nice, kind thing to do, and maybe the person turns out to be a murderer or, uh, or whatever that might be. So you need the combination of the two. You need both the kindness, the willingness to go help someone, which gets me involved in undoing my attachment to the physical, but I also need truth in order to think through correctly how to do that uh, and to use my actions uh, in the best possible way in that situation, not just go sort of apply kindness blindly. So that would be my best guess as to why he included both, uh, both of those ingredients. Okay, we'll stop here for the evening, and thank you very much for joining, and hope you can join us next time.